Let us pray. Illumine our hearts, O God, with the radiance of Christ's presence, that our lives may show forth his love in this weary world. Teach us to befriend the lost, to serve the poor, to reconcile our enemies, and to love our neighbors. A reading from Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, beginning with verse 17, the Gospel of the Lord. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thank you, Jenny. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Colossians in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 5 and 6 in just a little bit. If you have a pew Bible, it starts on page 1,835. Well, it was a Friday night underneath the bright neon lights of the Las Vegas Strip. Like most nights, tens of thousands of tourists flooded the streets up and down Las Vegas Boulevard, inside and outside of the famous hotels and resorts that called that famous address their home. In the midst of this, tourists were constantly bombarded by sensory overloads of sights and sounds and constantly bumping into those who called Las Vegas their home. They were their taxi cab drivers. They were street performers. They were resort workers. And yet in the midst of this crowded mass of people, if, if a tourist decided to start walking north a little bit, a few miles, they would have noticed the crowds start to thin and the hotels lose a little bit of their luster. And eventually they would have seen a small, nondescript, two-story hotel called the Aruba, nestled between two wedding chapels, only famous because somebody famous was once married there 30 years ago. And if they wandered in, they would have seen something very different. They would have seen Las Vegas locals, not at work, but dancing. They would have wandered into Thunderbird Lounge, where on Friday nights, for as long as people could remember, Las Vegas locals gathered at this locals joint to go swing dancing. Well, I was there only for a few weeks, and I'd already become a local at the Las Vegas Swing Dance Night at the Aruba Hotel. And there I actually met somebody even newer than me. We'll call her Kelly. So we had the basic, you know, Las Vegas conversation. Where are you from? How long you been here? So what brought you to Las Vegas? And eventually my job as a pastor came up, and their countenance changed a little bit, and they basically said to me, you may not like me then. I'm an atheist. You see, even though we just met and we're getting along quite well, some combination of their perception and their experiences has taught them that Christians maybe don't often like those uh, that believe differently than they do, let alone like, let alone love. And yet, the reality was she wasn't the first person I met to have the same sentiment. And it often actually went both ways. You see, over the next few years, I encountered a lot of the similar attitudes to what she apparently experienced before, 
Christians and non-Christians alike who seemed willing to assume the worst about the other. The reality is that mutual distrust and suspicion and fear are, can be common amongst those who call themselves Christians and those who do not. In our own context, in some way it's a reflection of our modern American culture of, of media-intensified polarization, which teaches people to view those not like them as, as people to be feared or an enemy to be fought or people to be avoided, people to be talked about or maybe talked over rather than just talked with. And yet the negative attitudes can't all be blamed on, on media. You see, years ago, one study by the Barner Research Group discovered that nearly 9 out of 10 young non-Christians, 87%, said that the term judgmental accurately described present-day Christianity. A lot of what my friend, my new friend Kelly had experienced could be summed up in the bumper sticker of all the hurt and frustration that sums it up into one phrase of people's interactions with many Christians. Jesus, save me from your followers. On the other hand, many who had become followers of Jesus have struggled to connect with friends and family members who don't share their beliefs, who see their view, maybe their embracing of Christianity is actually a rejection of them, a rejection of their culture, a rejection of their family, or a rejection of their ideals. And as their value systems change, often Christians find themselves feeling torn between faithfulness to Christ on one hand and honoring the wishes of friends or family members on the other hand particularly when they realize that their acts of love for Christ are often perceived as a lack of love for the other person. Meanwhile, many who are Christians and finding themselves in spiritually mixed marriages find themselves torn between feeling like they have to choose between deeper intimacy with Christ on one hand and deeper intimacy with their spouse on the other. See, in our highly polarized culture, we're different Uh, views and choices are often interpreted negatively in each other, where past experiences and hurts often lead us to view others with suspicion. The question is, how do Christians learn to love well the non-Christian, those who don't share their love for Christ, those who don't believe what they do? We might think of it in our modern context, but it's actually a question that's quite literally centuries old. You see, in Apostle Paul's letter to the Christians living in Colossae that we're going to look at, we actually find an answer writing to those inside of Christ's church, Paul gives them guidance for loving those outside the church. It's here in Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. This is God's word. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. In other words, those outside of the church. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. What do we see in this passage? What's Paul saying here? Why is it so hard to live out? And how is it possible? Those are the three things I want us to consider this morning. First of all, what's Paul saying to us here? You see, in the Gospels, Jesus actually taught that all of God's commands were really uh, an expression of the two greatest commands, to love God and to love people. And, And this commandment is no exception. See, what Paul is teaching us here is what it looks like and what it sounds like to love well those who don't believe the same as you do. In verse 5, Paul starts off by saying, be wise. Biblical scholar Dr. Jack Collins defines wisdom in the biblical sense as skill in the art of godly living. Or as John Piper puts it, it's knowing what to do when the rule book runs out. It's knowing how to become all things to all people without compromising holiness and truth. See, Paul is telling us that it matters how we we live. It matters how we act and how we speak with each other, especially for those who don't share our own beliefs. 
And that's for a good reason. You see, it's not uncommon for Christians in the day that this passage was written to be seen in a negative light by those outside of the church because the ways they didn't fit their surrounding culture. For example, in those days, Christians were often viewed as atheists because they didn't serve any visible gods or statues. They were viewed as unpatriotic because they wouldn't burn incense in front of images of their emperor. They were viewed as immoral because they often met behind closed doors, leading people to spread rumors about what really happened behind those closed doors. And though people and cultures have changed over the last 2,000 years, Jesus' followers continue to be a peculiar people in all cultures and in all times. I mean, let's, let's face it. Let's be honest with ourselves here, Christians. Christians are weird. Okay, let's just own that. We wear an ancient symbol of Roman execution as jewelry. That's, that's what the cross is about. We believe in a God who has the right to tell us that we're wrong rather than just choosing to believe in a God who always tells us what we want to hear. We see freedom as the ability to be promiscuous with our money rather than with our bodies. And when people see that, it's bound to make them scratch their head. It's bound to make them look at you differently. And because of that, it doesn't take much to accidentally feed into a false narrative of what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. See, loving others well, especially those with different beliefs than you, takes wisdom, especially when it comes to the words that you speak. And you see, and knowing the potential for suspicion or misunderstanding on both sides of the conversation, Paul tells the church in verse 6, let your conversation be always full of grace. Grace simply means unmerited favor or blessing or benefit. It means treating somebody better than they might deserve or they might expect. And it starts with our posture towards the other person. It means giving the other person the benefit of the doubt. In other words, seeing them as innocent until proven guilty, not viewing them under suspicion. It means your questions to them shouldn't sound like an interrogation, but like an honest inquiry. It means assuming the best in somebody and seeing that in coming out in the way we actually speak with them and about them. It means speaking in a gracious way, ways that actually build the other person up in truth. It means never speaking of another person in terms that they would never speak about themselves. See, to always be gracious in speech simply means no slander and no gossip. And there's a reason why that's important to know, because as much as we feel connected with someone else when sharing that juicy piece of gossip with them, they can't help but wonder in the back of their mind, if this is what they say about this person when they're not in the room, what did they say about me when, when I'm not in the room? To speak graciously means first asking yourself a few questions before speaking, in public or in private, in person or online. First, it means asking, is it true? How do you know it's true, rather than just a false perception of the other person? It means asking yourself, secondly, is it necessary? In other words, is this something that they just need to hear or just something I'm dying to say to them? Third, is it helpful? Is it something helpful for them to hear, not just something you really want to say? Is it helpful at the moment that you're thinking of speaking it? Is it helpful if it comes from you? Do you have their ear? Do you have a voice to speak into their life? Are you speaking with your own interest in mind or their interests in mind? It means asking ourselves, is it true? Is it necessary? Is it helpful? And if the answer to any of those questions is no, and you say it anyway, there's a good chance you're just going to confirm what 87% of young non-Christians already suspect about Christianity. You see, for conversations to be full of grace means first emptying ourselves of what is not of grace. Grace sometimes comes out in what we don't say. That's what we read in Proverbs 10, verse 19, when it says, When words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue 
is wise. See, doing this is not just for uh, their own benefit or their own reputation. It's actually for your reputation and also for your credibility because it doesn't take much of an overstatement on your part uh, to lose trust amongst those who may have reason not to trust you already. Gracious speech isn't just about what we don't say. It's also about what we do say, which is why Paul tells the church that our conversations are not only to be full of grace, but it says in verse 6, also seasoned with salt. I mean, what's that mean? Let me help. Imagine that you just opened a fresh bag of your favorite type of potato chips. You struggle and then finally pop. And then that fresh aroma of all that seasoning starts wafting up to your nose and your mouth begins to water. You you take a whiff and suddenly you find yourself reaching in to pull out a single crisp potato chip and your fingers start to get covered with all that salty goodness. You look at it and maybe it's covered with chives, maybe sour cream and onion or maybe French onion seasoning, maybe little barbecue seasoned flakes. And then you take that first bite and your mouth just explodes with like the flavor of of the chip and all the seasoning and the the saltiness and the potatoes and the goodness. And and suddenly before you're even done chewing that first chip, you've already grabbed another and then another and then another. And then you're hating yourself for it, but it tastes so good. And then you realize now your fingers are covered with all this salty goodness. And your inner child comes out as you start licking your fingers so that none of that salty goodness goes to waste, but now you want more than just another chip. Now you're thirsty. Now you want something more. You see, gracious words seasoned with salt are just like that. They're words that give people an irresistible taste of grace, something that makes them hungry and thirsty for more. Think of those people whose response to you is always better than you expected. Maybe it's the person who gives you the benefit of the doubt when others around you would think the worst of you. Or maybe it's the person who seeks you out when you've been less than a good friend to assure you that they're not going anywhere. Maybe it's someone whose gracious response when they hear about other people's sins and failings convince you that they might actually be safe to entrust with the truth of your own sin and your own failings you think of those people, you'll probably notice that people tend to gravitate to them, wanting to get another taste of grace. I'll tell you a story. Back when I was 22, I was really struggling with this whole idea of of grace being at the center of Christianity. And so I went to a conference where I heard some things that I disagreed with at the time. So afterwards, I challenged the speaker saying, you're trying to make the Bible say something it's not. Let's just say the response wasn't what I expected. They responded to me by affirming me, asking my name, and and saying, you know what, Keith, I can tell you really do love the Bible as God's word. And I said, I do. And then they said, you know, I bet it really would upset you to see somebody misusing or twisting God's word. And I say, yes, it does. And then they asked me, have you seen that before? Have you seen other people misusing God's word? And I said, yes. And then they said, I bet that really hurt you see that happen. And I said, yes, it did. Then they said, I'm really sorry that happened to you. What? Like, time out. Like, I came to pick a fight, okay? I'm here to prove this guy wrong about his misappropriation of what this grace means and how we're supposed to relate to people as a result of it. And the response that he gave proved the very thing that he'd been teaching 20 minutes before better than any reasoned argument he could have given me. I came to pick a fight. He came to give me grace. And grace won. 
See, the speaker at that conference actually applied the truth of verse 5, where Paul writes, make the most of every opportunity. You see, what he could have seen as a battle to be fought, he saw as an opportunity to show me grace. What about you? Do you see your interactions with others, especially those of a different belief system, as an opportunity to show them grace? Maybe when you've been hurt by somebody, do you see the opportunity to show them the same radical grace and forgiveness that God has shown you in Jesus Christ? When you lose your temper, and maybe it's your child, or maybe it's your spouse, or maybe it's your sibling, or roommate, or coworker, or classmate, when someone else gets the worst of your temper, do you see the opportunity to humbly confess and seek forgiveness, showing them the freedom that grace actually gives you to not have to justify yourselves before others. Instead, be honest about your failings. And when you meet those who inevitably you'll eventually meet those who have reasons to fear and distrust Christians because of previous hurts, including distrusting you, do you realize that you actually have another opportunity in front of you? See, gracious speech seasoned with salt is actually what helps those with reasons to fear or distrust or maybe who misunderstand Christians the opportunity to learn to trust. Um, let me tell you a story. Uh, Mom will remember this one. When I was uh, little, uh, my neighbors had a little dog named Skippy. Skippy was an English Springer Spaniel, and I don't have a picture of Skippy, but we do have a picture of his doppelganger, who's up here, I think, on the walls. I think we have a picture of... There you go. So here I am, warm summer day, and I go over to see Skippy's owners because they had a video game system I wanted to play. They weren't home, so I just sat on the porch with Skippy and decided I was just going to sit there for maybe 15, 20 minutes and just keep on petting Skippy because dogs like that kind of thing, right? Especially like with really like awkward little kids that, that they don't know that well, petting them. So the next thing I know, I hear this, and I'm like, what is that? And I turn just in time to hear a woof just as Skippy lunges forward and bites me in the face just below this eye. You can still see the scar if I look carefully. You can only imagine the horror on my mom's face when, like, her son comes home, you know, saying, whatever I was saying, I don't know. I, I, it was a long time ago. And yet, from that moment, I found it hard to feel comfortable, not just around Skippy, but, but really around any dog. See, every time that I saw a dog, I didn't see what you see in this picture. I saw what you see in this next picture we're going to show you. You see, a playful bark was interpreted as a threat after that moment. Jumping up to greet me was interpreted as, as an attack. You see, you know how dogs sense fear? Well, because that's what I had in my mind up there. Let's just say they had a whole lot of fear to sense, and that probably made things worse for my interactions with dogs. Unfortunately, Skippy was not the last dog to show me that type of look, not the last dog to bite me. Some didn't break through my clothes. Others actually broke the skin, just like Skippy did. I eventually grew to have a reason to expect the worst from a dog. But then there was Bear, Garrett's dog. Then there was Adler. Then there was Rudy. These weren't like the other dogs. They actually helped me see that not all barks are hostile. Not all dogs need to be feared. Some could actually be your best friend. And with time, I began to see dogs in a whole new light. I share that story because, in a sense, many non-Christians have been bitten by Christians. And instead, they need to meet a safe one. See, just like my experiences with dog, the change doesn't happen overnight. Learning to trust again takes time. Thank you. It's like the rule of seven. 
I don't know, if you're in the business world, the marketing world, you've probably heard of the rule of seven. That, that means that it takes about seven interactions with uh, someone or someone's new idea or to change your perspective. So why would we expect it to be any different for those who have a negative perspective of Christians? The question is, are you committed to loving people for the long term? Long before they might believe. Long before they love you back. Maybe long before they even trust you. See, their initial reaction to you might actually say more about others who have hurt them before than it does about you or that it even does about them. You see, grace, gracious speech, actually has a distinctive sound when it responds to the news of hurts caused by other Christians. When someone tells you about the horrible thing that a professing Christian did to them or their family or their loved ones or their, uh, their neighbors, it means actually grieving with them. That's Romans twelve fifteen. Grieve with those who grieve, rather than minimizing their hurt by quickly pointing out, well, that wasn't a real Christian, or not all Christians are like that, both of which could be very true statements. But the defensive posture that starts with that type of response immediately invalidates the hurts that they've experienced and communicates that their hurt is actually less important to you than defending those of your own kind. See, when our conversations become full of grace, seasoned with salt in these ways, Paul says in the end, we'll actually know how to answer everyone. We may not always have like the most intellectually sound or or quick or witty response to people's questions or comments, but if it's seasoned with salt, full of grace, a gracious response, you'll find is always the right response. Yet to be able to answer others well actually means that we have to know them well. It means asking good questions. That means paying attention other people. It means when you ask questions, it means listening well. Listening to hear, not just to reply, not just to rebut, not just waiting for your turn to speak. It means paying attention to loaded one-liners that give you a window into their soul. Here's what one-liners look like. They're usually statements about, with about this many words and about that much emotion. Pay attention to those one-liners because in listening closely, you might actually hear why they might not feel comfortable with the idea of Christianity or maybe feel, not feel safe around Christians or maybe not trust them. In a process, you might find a reason and an opportunity to empathize with them, to become an ally for them. See, Christians are called to love non-Christians through a gracious posture coupled with gracious speech that gives people an irresistible taste of the goodness of grace offered in Christ that actually breaks down walls of suspicion and misunderstanding and actually starts to heal past wounds. Why doesn't this come naturally? Why do we struggle to live and to love this way? Well, for one, it's because we tend to reduce love for the non-Christian to simply a personal appeal to become a Christian. I mean, I can tell you that in my own story, when I was 13 years old, it was very loving when Chris Fruling asked me if I knew if I was a Christian. That was a very loving thing for him to say to me. But I only learned that at that point that I wasn't a Christian and that I actually wanted to be a Christian after months of immersion in Christian community where people showed me love and grace in a way that I was not experiencing in my school. And yet reducing love to an evangelistic appeal may not be the largest obstacle to loving well our non-Christian friends and family members. You see, Paul's instructions in his letter actually assume that people are already in vital, healthy relationships and interaction with those outside of their faith community. Paul's instructions in his letter tell us that maybe the greatest obstacle to keeping Christians from loving non-Christians is that, well, today, relatively very few of us actively pursue meaningful relationships with those who are outside of our faith. 
research actually supports this reality. According to one recent study, one out of five non-Christians in North America does not personally know a single follower of Christ. That's in the tens of millions if you start doing the math. You see, the reality is that percentage is even higher for those from other particular backgrounds. 65% of Buddhists, 78% of Hindus, 43% of Muslims in America do not personally know a single follower of Christ. That's on us. Often we prefer the safety and the familiarity of the holy huddle, as somebody has called it before. Or maybe we keep others at such a distance because of our busyness or other reasons that the only way we have to understand those that don't share our faith is by others' descriptions of them or our own fuzzy perceptions from a distance. See, for Christians to love the non-Christian means making time for those who don't share our faith, breaking out of the holy huddle because it's really hard to love somebody from a distance. And because we don't often see people of different faiths up close and personal, we fail to see them the way that the scriptures describe them, to see what's true of them according to the Bible. For example, Genesis 1.27 tells us, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It means every person that you believe, that you meet, no matter what they believe, bears the image of God. We see it in how they reflect his glory and the way that they reflect his attributes. So to give you an example, we have a, a hospitality ministry to the arts community called the chapel. The chapel. It's that part of the building way in the back that people are constantly coming and going from. Most of the musicians and artists and performers that book the chapel are not Christians. And yet we see God's creativity reflected in their creativity as they bear the image of God. We see the image of God and how they value the things that God says he values. Beauty, the creation, truth. We see it in how they recognize the truths of God's word and God's world, even if they don't believe in God. Respond to that reality means not only seeing the image of God in them, but acknowledging the image of God in them, telling them how you see the image of of God in them, treating them as if they bear the very image of the one who made them and who made you. You may disagree with them in dozens of ways, but gracious speech always looks to affirm the things that you know you can affirm. And because we fail to see the image of God in other people, instead we often take our cues uh, and how to relate to them and how to see them from our broader culture. We talked about a little bit earlier. Um, we all know something about culture. Parents know about culture. When I was a kid, my parents uh, didn't want me watching certain programs that were on TV because they knew that I learned by immersion. I learned how to see people and how to talk about people by how I see others talking about people. And as you know, uh, what makes a good punchline and a good zinger on a sitcom, you know, isn't always what makes the best friendships. Good for ratings bad for friendships. You see, many of my parents' generation were actually concerned about the media influencing how my generation would learn how to see and relate to people. In the same way, now that I'm grown, I'm talking to a lot of my friends and my peers, and I find out that they're all concerned about how the media that their family members consume will influence the way that they see and they speak about others who are not like them, whether it's the political rhetoric they hear from their elected officials or from partisan news sources. And yet for many Maybe the obstacle to loving the non-Christian well is that we fail to see a non-Christian the way Jesus sees them. See, in our scripture reading, we heard about a man that we often call the rich young ruler, what Jenny was reading. Jesus is talking with him, and, and he asks Jesus what it would take for him to have eternal life. So Jesus eventually tells him that he needs to part ways with his functional God and follow him. 
the rich young ruler wouldn't do that. He would not believe. He was not ready to become a Christian. And yet in Mark chapter 10, verse 21, we see that Jesus' response to him, knowing that, is this. Jesus looked at him and loved him, seeing the image of God in him, but also being fully aware that there was something in this ruler's life that they loved more than Jesus, that they were in bondage to, that was actually keeping them from following Jesus, that actually kept them from loving others, in this person's case particularly, that kept them from loving the poor in their midst. See, in this particular case, it was his money that was that obstacle, but it could be any number of things for any number of us or those that we meet. And yet in love, Jesus showed him a mirror. He reflected to him what was true about him, He showed him the power that his money, that his idol actually had over him. He showed him that that even though he was willing to do all of these good religious things that he was happy to tell Jesus that he had done, it was only so long as he could hold on to his functional God, his, his mammon, the thing that he was trusting his wealth to give him, to give him life. You see, what Jesus shows us in Mark chapter 10 is that love is not indifferent to the plight of others. Sometimes love holds up a mirror. Sometimes love pushes back against others. And yet, ultimately, Jesus shows us that love does not withhold itself based on belief. Jesus looked at him and loved him. How about you? As a Christian, how do you see non-Christians in your midst? Do you love them? Do you see them the way Jesus sees them? Do you treat them the way Jesus treats them? Do you only see them from a distance or up close? Do they sense from you the aroma of grace? Do interactions with you give them an irresistible taste of grace? These things are worth asking because as Paul says, as Paul implies from his letter, grace in speech presupposes that there's already grace in a person's heart. Or as Jesus says in Matthew 12, verse 34, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What do you see in your heart? Do you see grace there? Do you have love for the non-Christian? If not, how does that change? How does this kind of love become possible? Well, as a Christian, the way that we learn to see and to speak to non-Christians in a way that actually gives them a taste of grace and actually makes them hunger and thirst for more is by reminding ourselves of what made grace taste so good to us in the first place. What makes grace taste so good to you? If you're a Christian, remember how God loved you before you believed, how grace first came to you. If you need a reminder, we have one in Romans 5, verse 8, which says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. In other words, while we were still spiritual outsiders, at best indifferent to God, at worst maybe even hostile to God or those who represent him. In other words, in the midst of our own self-righteousness, a self-righteousness that maybe we recognized and maybe we did not recognize, while we were still bent on trying to be our own God, live by our own rules, while we were still busy trying to be our own Savior, trusting in our own spiritual resume rather than Jesus' perfect resume offered on our behalf, while we were living in bondage to would-be saviors that can never deliver what they promise. In the midst of that, How did God show you his love? Well, first, he crossed boundaries of comfort and privilege by coming into this world. He endured people's misunderstandings, their ridicule, and even their hostility. But most of all, he endured the cross. 
the ultimate image of what man thinks of God and of what God thinks of man. You see, the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus contemplated what it would take for grace to come to you, he asked God the Father if there was any other way besides the cross, if there's any other way besides God having to live, Jesus having to live the life that you should have lived but couldn't, any other way but him having to go to the cross to die, to pay the penalty for your sins, if there's any other way besides the cross. And God the Father said, no. No, there is no other way. And so Jesus had a decision to make. He looked to you, knowing all of your sin, all of your shame, all of your fear, all of your failings. And then he looked to what would need to happen on the cross to do something about that. How he, being innocent, would have to be punished as if he were guilty. Experiencing abandonment because God cannot look upon sin. And there on the cross, Jesus would have the sin of all of those who had trusted him placed upon him. And knowing that those that he would die for would constantly stumble, constantly fail, constantly hurt him, and often forget his grace, he looked to your need for grace. And he looked to what it would cost him to meet that need. He looked to you, and he looked to the cross. Then to you, and then to the cross. And then he looked to the Father and said, let's do this. Not my will, but your will be done. Friends, Jesus showed the greatest love and grace for you when you did not believe in him. To change your heart, to show you his love so that you can show that same love to others, to those who do not yet believe. See, before grace ever comes through us, grace must first come to us. Years ago, before I had the privilege of meeting most of you in this room, I actually met another Friday night swing dancer. We'll call him uh, Ted. He grew up overseas, but actually started to explore Christianity while he was a student at an American university. Uh, By the time that I met him, a friend of his had recently invited him to come to church with him. Uh, As I got to know him, I I got to, to see how he was beginning to learn what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, how it means actually relating to God based on what Jesus has done rather than based on what we have done. He started to understand it, and when I, when I asked him one day, it's like, so, so what do you think about this? He says, I don't think I'm ready. I eventually found out that, that you know, he was uh, a very scientifically-minded person, a very practical person, and he basically said, you know, the reason, that in, you know, in my field, the way that I know that something is true is because it works in real life. And the reality is they had never seen grace at work in their life, not with their family, not with their friends, not in their school. But then something happened. They really blew it. They really hurt something. They, they really did wrong, and they hurt a friend, a really good friend. In fact, it was the same friend that first brought them to church with her. And now he knew what was coming next. He'd seen it happen countless times before. He knows how this story goes. He knew what was going to come next, and then for some reason, it didn't happen the way he expected. He knew what it was like. Uh, to see people when you hurt them turn against you in anger or turn away from you in abandonment, but instead she turned towards him in love, treating him and his sin better than he deserved because she'd come to see that that's how God treats her and her sin in Christ. And it was in that moment that he looks back on as when grace became real because he saw that grace worked. He 
Jesus and actually seeing grace at work with the person that he could see helped him to believe the offer of grace from God was true from the person that he could not see. And then suddenly, grace started working on him. It started changing him. It started enabling him to love the way that he was loved. It started creating this uncontrollable desire for others to experience this grace, to learn how to translate this grace into other people's lives, into other cultures, so that others could experience what he had experienced. He he became brand new. It was a beautiful thing. The reality was he had experienced grace. He had seen the love of God through the grace of another. And what you would see now if you had met him was somebody who treats others better than their sins deserve, who's learned to give people the benefit of the doubt, who desires to show the aroma of grace, to give people an unresistible taste of grace that they too might find out that there's a God in heaven that wants to relate to them the same way. May the same be true of us in this place. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that you offer to us in Christ. Father, we thank you that by grace you actually choose to relate to us better than our sins deserve because of what Jesus did. Father, in many ways we struggle to love other people well. We struggle to love people well that believe the same thing that we do. And in many ways, Father, we fall short of your call to love our neighbor when that neighbor is somebody who is not already a Christian. Father, forgive us for the ways that we have sinned against our brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, forgive us for our lack of empathy for those who have been wounded by our brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, forgive us for forgetting your grace. Remind us of your grace, even as we come to this table, that it may overflow in our lives, that everywhere that we go, we can give people an irresistible taste of grace. May we be the aroma of Christ, even as we come to this table, that reminds us of what Christ did. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.